This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Three dark queens are born in a glen. Sweet little triplets will never be friends. Three dark sisters, all fair to be seen. Two to devour, one to be queen. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampage Pagan, and this is Authored, a show in which I have these conversations with writers that are built around themes. This season, I'm speaking to them about their firsts, their first literary loves, their first characters, about the first time they knew, like really, really knew, that this is what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives. Uh, hello, my name is Kendara Blake, and I am an author. Um, some of my books include the Anna Dressed in Blood series, and my newest book, which is just out today, actually. It's called Three Dark Crowns. Joining me today, Kandara Blake, whose brand new book, Three Dark Crowns, just hit our bookshelves. So, Kandara, for people who don't know, if you could sum it up in a nutshell, what is, what is Three Dark Crowns about? Ah, Three Dark Crowns is a dark fantasy. It's set on a magical island, and it is about three triplet queens. So, unfortunately for these queens, on this island, when they turn 16, they have to kill each other, basically. They have a the year death. to kill each other, a fight to the death, and whichever queen is left standing at the end of that year gets to rule the island. I'm curious to know, what is the first piece of, the first piece of magical fantasy that kind of inspired you? Who was that by? What was it? Do you remember? Oh... The first piece of magical fantasy. I mean, would you consider horror to be kind of magical? I mean, I'll let you it have has that. Magical yes. elements, <laughs> magical elements in it. So I suppose it would be the works of Stephen King. He was actually the first like adult novelist that I ever read. I think I started picking up his books when I was about ten, probably a little too soon. But you know, I just devoured them. And they continue to inspire me today. Well, here's the thing about Stephen King. I think we all picked up his books a little too soon. (laughs) We did, right? I mean, so when I was growing up and I was old enough to go to bookshops and buy my own books and make my own decisions, I think he had just Mm -hmm. released The Green Mile. And I hadn't read any Stephen King before that. And, of course, if you remember, it was serialized. So they kind yeah, of released a volume every few weeks or something like that. And, of course, after reading The Green Mile, you get obsessed with Stephen King, and it's nothing like anything else he's written. Right. And then you're um, in for a pretty rude so shock. <laughs> that was your first. It Stephen was my King, first. was the serialized Green Mile. That's right. And you right. actually read it, like, in serialized form, month to month. Month to month. That's how I used to buy it in, in, in the local bookshop. Oh. oh, that had to be a really cool experience. It was incredible, but... But yes, and then you go on and you start reading things like It and Carrie and Pet Cemetery, and, <laughs> and you're like, what is this? Where is, where is the magical black man that can solve all the problems? <laughs> right, but like It, how good is It? That's got to be maybe my favorite Stephen King novel. Such a tour de force. Well, you know they're remaking it into a film, right? I know, I know. Have you seen the, the first pictures of the new Pennywise? Does he feel a little 
too scary to you? He, you know, he actually doesn't seem scary at all. Maybe I'm kind of desensitized to clowns, but I don't know if you can get better than Tim Curry in the original made-for-TV movie. So that's what I meant. The first pictures of Pennywise have him looking in his, in his scary clown mode with the sharp teeth, right? But the interesting thing about the original miniseries was that Pennywise seemed a little unoffensive. Yeah, yeah. It was just Tim Curry and like a red nose. It was great. <laughs> Until then, you know, you saw his teeth, and then he became so scary. But I really love the way that Tim Curry played it. And I don't know, I he looks like he's going to be a lot younger this time, so I'm curious. I mean, I'm definitely going to see it. Oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I, I watch anything, and I read anything that man puts out. So is it safe to assume that Stephen King inspired you to be a writer, or was that someone else? Well, I don't know. I would have to say that I've kind of always wanted to be a writer, Um Ever since I was a child, like I used to read the same eight or nine unicorn books over and over again, drag my mother <laughs> to the library and make her recheck them out, the poor woman. So I think it was just the love of reading that kind of moved into a love of writing. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was him, just him, but he certainly had a big effect on my early writing. I mean, I wrote so many horror stories just because he was also writing horror stories. Do you remember any specific author that particularly influenced your style or at least the first author you read that made you go oh i want to be like this person when i grow up well mm, there are so many but the one that jumps to mind i was reading a lot of angela carter when i was in grad school and her style is so strong and it's, it's so different from my natural style so i found myself really wanting to emulate and wanting to try that style out you know such really rich, rich prose. And I did write a few short stories in, you know, what I what I hoped would be closer to her voice, but I can only sustain it for about the length of a short story and then I can't. It's just it's too tough. It's so dense. It's so lyrical. It's so gorgeous. I don't have it. <laughs> well that's how we learn, right? I guess we copy and we emulate and then and then hopefully kind of find our own voice somewhere buried deep within that emulation. Right. For me, it was Michael Chabon, and it was Cavalier and Clay, because that book came out, I think, in 2000 or 2001, and he won the Pulitzer Prize, and I was reading this book, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, this guy's taken comic books, the kind of stuff I was teased about growing up, and he's made it serious literature. This is something. I mean, he's given it respectability. Now people will pay attention. I actually have not read any of his. You need to read it. I know of him, but I have not read him. I mean, it's... it's there's so many books, and it really ticks me off that someday I'll be dead and I won't have read them all. I have that exact same problem. I, I, I just keep buying them and, and buying them and buying them, and I have a very strong feeling that when I'm 70 years old, they'll just find me buried under a pile of books <laughs> because I would have tripped over something and they would all fall on me. Oh, God, like the like your two-read pile will actually kill you. Yes, wow. exactly. That would be... <laughs> it is an internal fear, let me <laughs> tell you. That would be an interesting obit, Yeah. <laughs> reading all these YA novels of late and I quite enjoy YA novels if only because in my mind these selections of books could very well be someone's first grown up book, that book that you choose for yourself like what I did with Stephen King or off a bookshelf in a shop and I think it's an important thing and I was going to ask you about that as a YA writer 
potentially being the first grown-up book that someone's picked. Oh God! Is that too much no, pressure? No, I've I've never actually thought of that. Like I've never I've never even considered that a reader would come to my books completely new. Uh, that it would be, you know, maybe their first teen book moving up from middle grade or, ch- or just chapter books. That's an intense thought. <laughs> because you know that, I they're 12 know. years old. Before that point, their parents and uncles and aunties have been buying them all their literature. And now they can go and pick for themselves and they look on a shelf and they see Kandara Blake. That's a cool cover. What's that about? And yeah, no pressure. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, I would... That is one reader that I would really, really love to hear from because I would love to hear what impression it made on them and, and, you know, what it made them feel as far as being their first chosen book. So who is your readers and who do you write for? Uh, Well, I don't really write for anybody. I write for the story. Um, When I'm actually drafting something, I don't... I I try not to think of audience. As much as I can avoid thinking of audience, I do. For me, when the writing is going well, it's kind of like I'm tapping into something that's happening in some other dimension, and I'm just trying to keep up. And when I'm writing, drafting, not when I'm revising, but when I'm just getting it down, the only thing I'm trying to do is tell the story as it happens and tell it as well as I possibly can the first time. In the past, I used to read a bunch of YA novels, but the kind of stuff that people recommend or that makes it big or becomes a film. So I'm thinking Divergence and Hunger Games and Maze Runner and all of that stuff because, you know, mm-hmm. it's out there. And YA isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the kind of things we naturally pick up. But over the last month, I've been reading quite a few of them. And two things struck out at me. One was that YA novels are dominated by female writers. And secondly... People are completely wrong when they assume that men or boys don't have anything in it for them. Because that's the general perception. It is kind of the general perception. There is that whole, um, you know, girl books versus boy books. And I, I found myself, you know, falling into that kind of trap thinking with Three Dark Crowns because it's a matriarchal society and it's it about is. three queens. Like, yes, there are, there are guys in it, and there are men, but they're not necessarily in power positions. All of the major power positions are held by women. And so it, it just kind of got into my head, like, well, what is a man going to find in this book? What is a boy going to want in this book? And then I was at a, a festival in Texas just this last weekend, and a 10-year-old boy just adored it. And I, you know, wanted to kick myself for thinking that he ever would not enjoy it. I mean, why, why wouldn't he? It's humans. He's a human. It's a story. He liked it. It's got characters. It's got magic. It's got family conflict. It's got fights to the death. What's there not to love? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I felt really foolish, you know, very, very sexist. It was sexist of me to think that way. Do you remember the first line that you wrote for this book? The first line that I wrote for this book... Was it the opening line? No. No. Actually, I suspect that it was probably something around the middle. Um, It it was probably a line of dialogue because I played around a lot with these characters. For about two years, I had this world and these characters rolling around in my head from when I got the idea 
to when I started writing it. So they were having conversations in my head, and they were doing this and that, and it was playing out like a movie. So I'm pretty sure that the first thing that was actually written was someone's line of dialogue, but I don't remember. It was probably something that Arsenault, the naturalist queen, said, because she was the first character that showed up. And is that usually your process, this idea of kind of playing things around with your head and then starting with dialogue? If I have the time, if I have the luxury of time that I think of this idea early enough before any deadlines strike, I would love to have two years to play with every single idea that I have <laughs> because it makes it so much easier when you finally hit the page because you have, you know, nothing needs to be worked out really as far as just the setting in the world and the characters and their initial motivations. And you know them so well that it's, it's fairly easy to hang with them as they go through all their twists and turns. Even though I don't outline, I don't know what's going to happen. It, it flows naturally as long as I have a really solid starting place. So yes, I would love to do that. I, I don't always have that time, but <laughs> I try. And what about writing dialogue? Because that seems like a very cinematic approach. A lot of the screenwriters I've spoken to have told me the same thing, that they always start with a piece of dialogue or a piece of conflict in conversation. Ah, Oh, you know what? I actually do remember the first bit of Ooh, the book that I ever wrote. Tell me. And it, it didn't even make it into the final draft. It was uh, something about the island itself, the Fenburn Islands, that it was called Fenburn, but it had an older name that had been forgotten over time, and only the oldest even remember what it was. It was something like that, and it was completely cut, but that is the first scene that I actually scribbled down on paper longhand. And it felt like something of a bit of world-building for yourself. Right. A lot of what... I wrote the first section of Three Dark Crowns about three different times from three different starting points. And all of those things were things that I needed to write, needed to work out just to get some of the world-building down. But they weren't actually where the story started. So we had to go into it numerous times. And do you remember the first character from Three Dark Crowns that was kind of bumping around in your brain? It was probably Arsenal, the naturalist, and then maybe her best friend Jules, who has the cougar for a familiar. They, they definitely showed up kind of as a duo, kind of as a pair. So the interesting thing about Three Dark Crowns and the thing I, I think I enjoyed the most about it was its darkness in that you didn't pull any punches. It was the same thing I think I enjoyed most about the Hunger Games, in that it didn't talk down to young adult readers. And that, I feel, is something incredibly important because kids are smarter, or at least they feel like they're smarter than I ever was at that age. I agree that is completely important. Um, and kids are smart. I mean, if you remember how you felt, you know, reading that first Stephen King book, I mean, it has, that's an adult book, but you didn't have any problem keeping up with it. Um, so... Kids who are at that reading level and who are ready for those books are, are ready to deal with, um, to decipher all of the concepts, any of the concepts that you'd want to lay out. So it doesn't, it doesn't make for good reading to talk down to them. Absolutely not. And do you have to constantly remind yourself of that audience? I know you said you didn't write for a particular audience, but you are writing for a particular age group, aren't you? Uh, usually no. Um, I, I really try not to think about it. If you like, if you go back to my first novel, Anna Dressed in Blood, I mean, it's swearing and violence just up and down the page. 
like, you know, like F word, F word swearing. <laughs> so I certainly, I, I just didn't consider it. That's what my character said. So that's what they said. And I just, you know, let it go. So my, my first obligation is always, always to the story. And then if I get pushed back on anything, you know, we deal with that in edits. Right. And of course, the whole YA thing is, 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 is just so much marketing. So you can always work around that. Yes. Yep. I've only ever been asked to cut one of my, my, one of my F words. And it didn't even get cut. It just got moved to the second page. <laughs> they just, they just, they're like, could we not have the F word on the first page right when you open it up? Like, That's sure, great. Yeah, we'll move it to the second page. Because the parents aren't going to read past page one. <laughs> and then there's something special and naughty for the kids inside. <laughs> I love that idea. That is great. Talk to me about your other series. So you've got Ella Dressed in Blood and the Anna series, and you've got the Goddess War series. When, yeah. when putting these things together, when writing books like this, do you have an idea already if they're going to be a duology or, or a trilogy? I have an idea whether they're going to be one book or not. Um, with Anna Dressed in Blood, it was my first one, so I, I didn't want to get my hopes up. I didn't want to write it as if it would go anywhere at all. So... Anna Dressed in Blood was written to be a standalone, but they requested a second book, and I was able to do that. There was more story to tell. Uh, with the Goddess War trilogy, I thought it was a duology. I thought it would be two volumes. I even had titles for them that worked really well, just as a two. And then as I got further into the story, I realized there was too much story to tell, and it would need to be turned into a trilogy. With Three Dark Crowns, I felt like it was a duo from the start, um, but it's a big world with a lot of history, and there's always room for expansion. So, I mean, I, I have the two books planned now, but, I mean, who knows where it could go. Do you remember the first piece of good advice that anyone gave you about writing fiction? You know, I remember the first piece of advice. It's not really advice, but the first comment about writing that I really disagreed with at the time. Uh, it, was, it was from one of the writers that I really, really admire most, um, Caitlin R. Kiernan. She's a fantastic dark fantasy writer. I, I wouldn't even, she's more of like a spec fiction writer. She just dabbled in a lot of stuff. Weird fiction is her, is her stock in trade. Um, and she wrote on her blog, and I think she was actually quoting Harlan Ellison, but she said, the hardest thing about being a writer isn't becoming a writer, it's staying a writer. And at the time, I was trying to become a writer, and it just, I totally did not believe her. I'm like, what the heck do you know? You must have had it so easy. Because this must have feels never been so hard. 700 times, because <laughs> this, the becoming part, the becoming a writer felt so hard. There was so much rejection and so much passion going into these projects that just weren't ready yet. And it felt like you were just rolling a rock up a hill and you were never going to make it. So when you finally got to the top, it must be this huge relief, you know, like, I'm in, finally, here I am. And I just did not understand what she could be talking about, you know, what Harlan Ellison could be talking about. But now that I've been a writer for a couple of years and I've had a couple of books, you know, under my belt, um, I get it. It is hard. Like, there are challenges at every single stage of the game. So 
it doesn't stop at the becoming. I'm so sorry, any young writers out there, but don't be discouraged. It's all still really rewarding, but I, I do understand what she means now. So wait, what is it then that helps with the continuing to be a writer? Well, I think it's just a continued passion. If you're still passionate about it and it's still something that you really want and it's and you still have stories that are annoying you to be told, that's that's the difference for me. Is I still have these stupid stories just bothering me <laughs> on a daily basis. And if I don't write them, I don't know. I think I might just go nuts. Kendara, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Kendara Blake. You can find Three Dark Crowns at all good bookstores. You've been listening to Authored. This is Bookmark BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.